Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Stomping Jen. Did you re-record that? I did re-record it. Does it sound great? Well, <laughs> because the fun part sounded a little sinister. <laughs> oh, it's more sinister? Oh, I've got to go back to the drawing board. I'm like, wait a second. It doesn't sound right. All right. My, my goal was to make it sound less sinister. I have failed. I think you clearly. went the opposite direction. All right. Well, listen. Let's put aside that disclaimer and get down to business here. Right, okay. Let's do it. Yeah. We're going to be talking to KB McConnell from Nothing But Kindness, a community organization focused on linking people who are struggling with unfairly stigmatized situations, um, linking them with resources that they can engage with on their own terms so that they can find meaningful, non judgmental support, right? And lead and live happier lives that they see fit, right? So I'm really excited um, to talk to um, KB. I think he's doing really great work um, with this organization. So I say without further ado, we jump right into this thing. Okay? Okay. All right. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Stomping Jen, I can't help but sing your name when I hear this chiming music. Hello, Stomping Jen. Are we ready to talk to KB McConnell? Yeah. I'm sorry. This music just makes me happy. I have to I'm sing. I'm so glad for I'm you. I'm gazing at you, and it makes me want to sing. So um, let's unmute um, KB's mic and say hello. Hi, KB. Hello, Sawtooth and Stomping Jen. I feel like I need to up my game a little and bring out my street name of Silverback. <laughs> I'll, I'll stay with KB for the evening, but I just wanted to, like try to meet you folks where you're at in terms of impact and uh, name uh, street credibility. Well, thank you. We, we may try to work silver back in here at one point or another. Um, thank you for, thank you for joining us. Um, I've really been looking forward to talking to you um, about your organization, nothing but kindness. So I kind of want to start off by asking you just to tell us a little bit more about yourself and nothing but kindness. Sure. Um, I ended up um, starting Nothing But Kindness kind of out of, I saw a need, uh, a necessity for um, almost kind of like a concierge for someone to have some navigation through an entirely traumatic system. I myself, uh, actually today is five years and six months opiate free myself. Um, But through that, um, 
I was given the luxury of a whole bunch of different experiences um, and kind of felt like I was the secret shopper of the network of folks that needed support. Uh, I myself, uh, after becoming opiate free, ended up homeless for a while. I had never been homeless before. Uh, and it was one of those things where, aside from it being super traumatic, it was very obvious where the system was broken. And I hold all of the privileges in the world that you could possibly have. I'm a white male, cis, hetero, speak English, came from middle class background, um, no legal barriers, no, no nothing at all that would make it, in, in theory, uh, any more difficult for me to get out of the situation. And it was absolutely nearly impossible to get out of the situation. So I felt like if I made it through the system myself and just kind of wiped my hands clean and thought like, all right, I'm out. Um, I know about the system now. And I felt like I would be complicit in a system that I absolutely don't think um, is really effective in terms of serving folks that are in need of someone to advocate for them or a helping hand. How, um, a question I have is how these um, so-called traditional systems that are designed to help people end up um, traumatizing them and failing them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like why they don't work maybe. And I know, I know it will be different maybe for, um, for different types of people and in different situations, but I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if generally you have any like general impressions about uh, why, why the system um, doesn't work and actually can end up harming people. So I will talk about that in two different prongs. Um, One is in terms of folks that are um, not stably sheltered or homeless or unsheltered. Um, And then I'll also talk about it in terms of people trying to navigate substance use. Um, In terms of homelessness, uh, there are these kind of just block rules that it's supposed to be one size fits all. And this is very clearly not the case. Um, An example that comes to mind was when I first ended up in a shelter. Um, It was November and I had a job interview scheduled um, to actually go out to Boston. And I was looking at, uh, taking over a a homeless outreach position out there kind of ironically and coincidentally because of my own situation. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was told by the shelter that if I left that evening to go to the job interview and I was gone overnight because it was in Boston and I had provided them with the email, like a third grader, I shouldn't have to like prove that I have a job interview and that here's my bus ticket and all these other things, I was told that I would lose my bet mm-hmm. if I went to the job interview that night. And I was super puzzled and pretty pissed. And I was like, but wait a second, like, I'm trying to empower myself. I'm trying to get back on my feet. If I go tonight, I lose my bed. What if I don't go to the interview? And this is in November. They said, you can stay till May 1st. And that just didn't make sense to me because if I tried to empower myself and literally rebuild my life, I was penalized and would lose my bed. But if I stayed there and did nothing, um, I was able to stay for another four or five months with no problem. And that was the moment in terms of sheltering that I realized how broken the system was. Um, 
I'm a, a grown adult. You know, uh, my problem is I didn't have housing at the time. It wasn't that I needed someone to manage me like a third grader or I was at least two years into my opiate abstinence at that point. Um, So it wasn't even a substance related thing. Uh, But the way that the system is, um, there's a giant power disconnect and a power dynamic that can be abusive, even if someone doesn't intentionally mean it to be abusive, you know. Folks often, I feel like when they see a homeless person, it's kind of like a Rorschach inkblot test. And it's terrifying because they could see their family member or their loved one, you know, very easily in that situation. And I feel like people often process this by thinking what a homeless person should look like or should act like, like how it fits in their worldview and in their lens. And Um, I was someone that did not look homeless. I was considered the quote unquote hidden homeless because um, I didn't fit the the typical uh, scenario or narrative of what someone thought a homeless person was. And I remember even thinking like I kept asking this particular caseworker I was with, like, why am I not getting these appointments? Uh, Why am I not able to get in here and speak to people? And he very clearly said to me, "Um, you present too well. You come in showered, you're, you look clean, you speak well, you don't seem like someone that needs help. Oh my God. Now, to me, it's very fucking clear if I'm outside and sleeping outside, I need help, especially if I'm asking for it. Right. And I, I realized at that point that people are forced to manipulate the system in a way to get what their needs are met. Um in a way that we, we put barriers up for folks that they shouldn't have to. Um, I, I was, I think, two, a little over two years opiate-free at the time, and I remember speaking with Mayor Narkowitz. Uh, I was at the Northampton Recovery Center one-year anniversary. We were super excited. We got to the one year. I had been trying to find housing, um, and I remember I called the Hairston House, which is a local uh, sober living house, and I was told that I was too, too clean. I was too drug free. Um, but if I had relapsed, I could have a room like within 24 hours. Oh my God. Now, I'm clearly, <laughs> yeah, I'm not someone who can like open and shut that door, you know, mm-hmm. nicely. Um, it's, it was a, a serious problem for me. Um, so that was frustrating. And I remember going to a, a respite. Um, mm-hmm. um, I was told that, um, I could easily get a room there for six months aside from the the five-day emergency stay that I was qualified for, if I had DMH involvement, Department of Mental Health. Um, And I did not have that involvement. So I was off the record told to go into Cooley Dick and say I wanted to kill myself. So I would get immediate DMH involvement, and then I would get immediate housing. And that pissed me off even further. And I said, why would someone want to continue to create barriers for themselves when they're trying to get out of this stuff? Right. So the two options I was given were to clearly manipulate the system so insurance would pay for it um, when that shouldn't. I just felt like that was insane to me. Like it just we're asking people to lie. We're asking people to be not truthful and waste money and um, medical professionals time as well as having to um, undercut their own dignity and self-esteem to basically grovel and lie and beg for help. 
And that was the piece that those were the two pieces that really frustrated me in terms of witnessing and experiencing um, people's struggles with being unsheltered. And in terms of the substance use, there's a, a whole lot of stigma attached to um, substance use. Um, and a lot of folks, when I do speaking engagements, don't realize, like, maybe it's not a substance, but we all have some things that we do, like, on a, a pattern, and we're very uncomfortable if that pattern is not met, whether it's checking your cell phone or having your coffee in the morning, um, taking your walk after a meal, whatever is your thing that you really feel uncomfortable and just kind of out of sorts when is not happening. That's a compulsion that could be um, strengthened by a chemical dependency. Um, for my for my entrance to opiates, I had seven surgeries in four years mm -hmm. and they had me on Percocets that entire time. Um, it was through the big pharma push just coming into the restrictive phase. So at the end of the four years, um, there was no taper. There was just a straight cutoff um, of four years of being medicated with opiates to literally nothing. Uh, I didn't even know what being dope sick was. Like I didn't have friends that did um, opiates. I was a pot smoking hippie drummer. Like I toured with hippies for the first like third of my life. So like that was really kind of, the experience other than some like typical, um, I guess, experimenting when I was super young, but I didn't know what being dope sick was. I didn't have people that, um, that at least that I was aware of that were doing opiates illicitly, like I ended up doing. Um, there wasn't even a conversation at the time about, well, maybe you should think about medicated treatment, like methadone or suboxone mm -hmm. or even a therapist to talk about some of the things that are going to start, you know, kind of chipping away at the foundation of what you think is normal life. Um, so those conversations weren't there yet. So I went from there to uh, calling up any family members or friends that had like leftover pain meds from oral surgery or whatever. Once I ran out of that, um, I started buying Percocets uh, on the street. Um, and then there was a, a time right before the first major surgery that someone went to get my Percocets for me and they called and said, you know, he doesn't have any Percocets. He's got something else. And I thought they meant like Vicodin. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, just get it, get it, whatever. Cause at this point I had three herniated crushed discs in my neck with 90% use, uh, loss of my left arm. It was pain was so bad while we were trying to get through all the testing and approvals through insurance that if I was lucky, I would consume enough substances to maybe make myself pass out for an hour to an hour and a half a night. Um, the pain was that bad uh, to the point where if they couldn't fix it, I really couldn't envision wanting to be alive because the pain was so um, it's something, it, it just brought me to another existence, another plane of existence where, um, you'd, you'd wake up in the morning and go, okay, shit, I have to be awake for the next 14 hours. Yeah. And you'd wait for that time to go by and you'd be like, all right, we're halfway through. And I look up at the clock and it's been a half hour mm. instead of like a half a day. Uh, that pain kind of, um, changes your perception of reality. And so I was super lucky that we ended up finding a surgeon that one would, 
it was able to diagnose it correctly, but then do the surgery because that surgery ended up saving my life in terms of probably um, if they couldn't fix that, if they couldn't fix that pain uh, at the time, my thought process was, I just need to end this. Like I can't, I'm not going to be able to go through life like this if I can't do a half hour. So there was a lot of stigma um, and big pharma pushing in terms of substance use, yeah. which created a lot of folks that were secretly using or never were in that, that, I guess that, that arena before. Um, they don't fit, like you were saying before with um, the hidden homeless, they don't fit the profile of what we all think yeah. of when we, not all of us, but what people want us to think of, right? When they think of Absolutely. an opiate addict. Yeah. Actually, at the time when I was using my heroin at the worst, I worked for Homeland Security. So I looked like a dude in a golf shirt with chinos um, doing my mm-hmm. IT job. Uh, but three weeks a month, I got to work from home. One week a month, I was at D.C. So I was making real good money at the time with no supervision. As long as I could log in and do my job, it was none. There was no harm, no foul. So it was very just weird to think about at the time. And even later on that I looked like a normal it nerd, um, that was snorting five bundles of heroin a day behind closed doors. Jeez. And you took those, you took those experiences, um, with, um, with, I think, struggling through your, um, your opiate dependency um, and your uh, what you told us about your um, homelessness and you kind of thought about the ways that the system had been failing you as a person who um, didn't get what you needed from it. And, and it was that the seed were were those the seeds for the beginning of nothing but kindness when you begin to think so- about that? Yeah. So at first it was more of a frustration with bad info, bad intel. Um, I would be at the shelter. I would look at this sign that says, oh, if you walk over here a mile and a half to this church, there's a meal there for lunch. So, but you got to carry everything you own. And if it's in the summer, you're carrying everything in that sign. You're walking there. I would get to this particular meal and they're like, oh, we stopped that a year ago. Mm. I was like, God damn it. Like this this info, you know, now I just spent all the calories I had left in my tank to get here. Mm-hmm. Now I don't even have food, you know, and I don't know where else to eat. Um, so I started documenting things, being an IT person, I started making my own spreadsheet and trying to validate um, the the currency of the information, you know, that if it was still valid. And I started making my own um, kind of database uh, where I could go on certain days to get warm or to charge my phone, where then, you know, like local merchants were uh, pretty friendly to folks and would let them either use the bathroom or, you know, charge their phone, use the Wi-Fi, get some water, which places were obvious to avoid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I started talking about other folks with it, and as new people, new homeless folks would come into town, they would be like, oh, but talk to KB. So I would walk around with them for a day or two and show them where all this stuff was. So I started putting it out um, 
I think I started the first Instagram and Facebook page for nothing but kindness, like in December of 2017. And I started just kind of posting that stuff like, hey, here's the weather. This is where you need to go if it's raining. Here's the meal for today. Um, here are the AA or NA meetings. Um, and I would just kind of try to put out a little snippet of information for folks. So it was like one-stop shopping so they could look at it in the morning and go, okay, this is good information. I can plan my day around this uh, because it's difficult enough when you don't have a car or a place to stash your things um, or just a way to kind of function in a normal way, which I always used to take for granted until it was completely taken away. Um, doing things like your laundry or the weather has never been a bigger issue than if you are unsheltered. Right. You know, um, that, that throws curveballs at you that for 45, 46 years of my life, I didn't even care about. Like if it's raining, I don't care. I'm inside. Yeah. But if you are kicked out of the shelter at seven in the morning in the middle of a torrential downpour, you're out there until three o'clock when you can get back into the shelter. So um, even if you're able to try to have a functioning life, um, you don't have the same level set and starting point uh, that everyone else gets to enjoy without even realizing that they have such a, a leg up on something. Yeah. And did you notice when you started uh, putting this information together and you started um, assisting other people um, that you were interacting with, did you notice it began to make a difference? I feel like that there were people early on that absolutely were super grateful. So I think a lot of times, often people that were new to the experience themselves, um, because I, I learned the hard way that I was always raised where like, if I met you, I respected you until you gave me a reason not to. Um, and that wasn't a luxury that everyone around me had. And a lot of folks that I was interacting with uh, were raised in an environment where you don't respect or trust someone until they prove it to you. Mm. So we were trying to get to the same place with each other, but from different ends of the spectrum. So I feel like at first there was a lot of people were like, what do you mean you're trying to do something nice and you're not expecting something in return? It was really puzzling and jarring to a lot of folks that I wasn't trying to get money from them at the end of transferring information or I wasn't, there was no, nothing I needed from them other than me trying to make someone's day 1% less shitty was like my goal. Um, and I think early on, some people were early adopters and were really grateful for the information. And in a lot of cases, people thought I was an undercover cop. Mm. Uh, I did not have the Mohawk at the time. Um, and I, you know, in some neighborhoods and in some areas, I am very different looking person, you know, in terms of like what is typically around in that neighborhood. So sometimes I stick out like a sore thumb. I stick out like a sore thumb, even in the most bland vanilla neighborhoods. I mean, you know, um, Mohawk, not that big of a deal. Sometimes I have sparkly nail polish on to play guitar, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I'm often singing. I've got my headphones on, so I'm often singing and not realizing that I'm singing out loud in public or air drumming or air guitaring. So uh, <laughs> I don't blend in super well to begin with. But um, 
I feel like in the beginning there was that helped also because when I switched to the the Mohawk, um, people were able to remember the weird guy with the Mohawk versus just oh here's another weird person that there's no differentiation. So um, I feel like over the last four years I've had to kind of tweak my approach in terms of connecting with folks, um, and I had to start that process really early on, like you said. Some people were into the information. Other people were super resistant. And uh, along with anything that I do, I will never non-consensually coerce someone into either accepting information or resources. I give them the opportunity and the option. It's their choice. They have um, their own uh, reserve of dignity and self-determination. And I respect what people want for themselves. Yeah, and, uh, and on your on your Facebook page, you talk about how when you're, um, uh, you know, uh, working with somebody, um, rather than um, assuming what people need and imposing on them, you kind of ask the question, you know, wh- where are you at? What is it you need? You ask people what they need or what they feel they need. And is there a power in approaching people that way versus you know, coming up, you know, coming up to them with a, with a pamphlet and saying, here, this is the information you need. I think that both have, so every, every person receives information differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm someone that likes to have an audiobook because I spend a lot of time either walking around and I also do well with audio learning. If I read something, I might have to read it two or three times through because I'm thinking I see one word. I'm like, what does that word mean? And where's the etymology come from? And then I'm like not even really paying attention to what I'm consuming for info. So I think some people do better with um, maybe they've got social anxiety and they don't want to talk to me. They don't want to talk to anybody. And that might be one of the barriers that keep them from getting places. So by giving them the information, either in a printed uh, format or digital online, it allows them to consume it when they want. Not when I say I have this hour free. I don't know how that works with your life. You might be stressed out. All this other stuff might be going on. This might be literally worthless for both of us. Um, I try to give people multiple ways to get the info. uh, And also I'll usually have a quick summary um, conversation with someone and just say, here is some of the stuff. Um, you can connect with me through here. If you have any questions, let me know. But a lot of times I'll, I'll start to end the conversation before I even um, wait for their answer because it lets them know that I mean what I say. And then it puts the power back in their hands. Either they want to talk about something or they don't. I know that I'm not a 12-stepper. When I first started going to my first methadone clinic, they said, you need to go to this NA meeting. Well, first of all, when you tell me I need to do something, automatically I have like shit in my head saying, I'm not doing this. Even Mm -hmm. if it's like you tell me I need to take this million dollars. Well, maybe not million dollars. (laughs) um, I I typically already I'm on a a defensive posture when someone tells me I have no choice but to do something. Um, And for me, the 12-step thing, it works for a lot of people. That's awesome. It just didn't speak to me. Um, It's it's pretty based in um, Christianity. And I was looking around the room seeing Jewish folks and Muslim folks. And immediately my internal advocate was like, well, what about those people? Like we're, you know, and they say, well, you don't need to say the word God. 
just say higher power. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but it says God 174 times throughout the book. We open with a prayer to God and then we end with a prayer to God. Um, and so why don't we just say higher power instead of God then, if you're just telling people to substitute it. So that kind of felt, can, that felt like, um, Hypocrite. like it was coerced. Mm. Yeah. So, um, for me, I was going to those meetings, but they were almost more damaging uh, to me because I was like sitting there resentful and grumpy because this wasn't helpful to me. And if I didn't go, I could lose my uh, methadone. Yeah. Uh, now there are, are other options like recovery Dharma, uh, refuge recovery. You know, there's Buddhist recovery meetings. There is recovery meetings that are people walking through the woods and counting leaves. Like there are infinite pathways to recover. And they are now becoming more uh, normalized and accepted because not everyone follows the same thing. AA and NA have a very low overall percentage rate of like extended. There are great success stories of both of them, but they don't have a super high success rate in terms of longevity, um, which is a lot of the metrics that either like doctors or uh, legal systems used to use as the reason why you should go. Um, And even CDC statistics with opiates, um, only 9% of folks are able to maintain 12 years of uninterrupted abstinence. Mm -hmm. Um, So nine out of a hundred people get there uh, in that first year. Uh, Now that's not to say people don't get there in other ways and with some bumps in the road, but it's a, it's a hard it's a hard path. And I myself was again, very fortunate. I had, my parents knew, Mm -hmm. um, I I don't, I don't really hide much from anybody. Um, my parents knew, um, my daughter knew and I had the ability at the time to take the two weeks off to go to detox. Like some people don't have that money or the ability to split. You know, if they don't have someone that can either take care of their kids or their job or whatever. Um, But I had supportive family. I had the ability to be able to take that time. And I had the resources at the time. Uh, And all of those things had to line up at the same time as there being a bed available at detox and me wanting this for more than a half hour until I got dope sick again and then talked myself out of it. Mm-hmm. which had happened a number of times before. So um, I was very fortunate. I wasn't coming back to either a neighborhood, a building, or an apartment with other people that used. Um, I actually, the last time I went to detox, I never even went back to my apartment and got any of my stuff. I just ghosted it because every time I went back, my dealer would show up with free a free bundle, mm-hmm. and then I wouldn't even make it 24 hours out of detox. Yeah. So I knew that if I didn't change it that time, because that last time at detox was my suicide plan. I'd already been to detox seven times. And I felt like I was, I felt like my daughter was ashamed. I was mortifying my parents. I was terrorizing everybody in my family. They all thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. And I figured rather than drag this out for another handful of years, the the end result is going to be the end result. So if I just, intentionally do so much that I intentionally overdose now, at least it's going to stop the next however many years of them being traumatized. Mm. And I was just waiting for my paycheck. 
you know, I was going to get $2,000 worth of dope, get some Papa Gino's and go out playing my drums. Um, but for some reason, two days before that paycheck came was the morning that I got up, went in my car, got to detox and literally never went back. Um, so I was fortunate in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people don't have that luxury. And especially at the time, and even still, there's a lot of moral judgment and uh, stigma uh, being tattooed on folks for substance use when in reality, I get at least five to 10 messages a week on social media. Hey, buddy, haven't seen you in a while. Don't tell anybody, but I'm struggling with this or my Mm -hmm. sister or my wife, my son, my mother, like so many people are dealing with this, but everyone's afraid to talk about it because of the shit storm and judgment that it brings down on folks. Yeah. We, we have talked about this a few times in different contexts on this podcast. And the more I talk to people, the more convinced I'm becoming that shame is the most destructive human emotion, right? And the 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 one that throws up the most barriers to people's ongoing mental and physical health and and and, and like when I hear you talk KB, like I'm 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 hearing a lot about, you know, um the how that that at different points in in your journey that you know, shame was a thing that was driving some of what um, what you're doing and was serving as a barrier. And so, so I very lo- much so. Yeah, so so I love that you you're thinking about that and what you're doing right now with nothing but kindness and and meeting people there and um, yeah, I mean I mean metaphorically meeting people and <laughs> and helping yep. them deal with that shame. So I can remember when I, right before I ended up uh, being able to get off of heroin, my phone was shut off. Um, I think I had sold most of my furniture. Uh, And I often will lead with this stuff when I connect with folks, because I want them to understand that they're going to get zero judgment from me. Like I throw out some of my shittiest things right off the bat to kind of set the stage. I sold my daughter's Xbox when I was dope sick. I'm completely embarrassed and mortified about that. And five out of seven nights a week, I lay in bed and feel my face turn red because that's something I never would have done before. But I lead with some of the depths of my story to let people know that it's okay to say or not say whatever you want, but it's, it's okay to say things to me because I've seen some of the same stories and rented some of the same movies that you may have rented. Um, And I still have an, an, an just an incalculable amount of shame that goes through my head on a daily basis, but I use my privilege and my bulletproofness to lead with my own story because like my parents know, my daughter knows, like anyone that's important to me knows and knows what I'm doing. So it's okay for me to crack that story wide open and tell all the, the bad stuff and all the things that I wish were different and all the things that I wish would change because I don't have to hide it. Um, and it was one of the most freeing things to me to be able to come out with my story because even up to the point where I was almost two years opiate abstinent, I still wasn't public with my story because I was still one afraid that I was going to return to use. And then mm-hmm. people would be like, ah, see, um, I was also still not, 
really open with what had happened. I was still trying to figure it out. Um, and how the hell I just tanked, you know, at the time what I was viewing as a very successful career in life. Um, you know, obviously I think there were still some challenges, but I had finally like hit some goals. Like I always thought once you get to six figures, you know, your life will be easy because at least you have resources. But I was the most um, miserable when I made the most money in my life. I was, you know, on call 24 seven. Often we work 18 hour days. I didn't have a life like the money wasn't worth it. And I was snorting all the money anyways. Mm -hmm. So um, there were still things that were challenges, but I had everything that you could have wanted. Like I was more concerned about trying to get an 80 inch TV rather than just being grateful that I had a door that shut and a roof over my head. Um, So as shameful and shitty as I felt, um, after I was able to kind of put some distance between myself and some of the more extreme, uh, I guess, pivot points in my, in my path, I felt like, the experience was probably going to be one of my most cherished experiences in life because it helped reset my expectations that kind of cumulatively grew, you know, layer by layer. I needed more. I needed this. I needed a better car. I needed, you know, a bigger keep up with the Joneses. I I had all these things in my life that I didn't really ever explicitly want in my life, but were there um, through incremental invasion. And this was able to kind of let me clear cut everything like a forest fire, burn out all the the shitty growth, and then just try to replant um, things that I wanted in my life intentionally um, and seeking out the type of work that I wanted to do intentionally rather than just going back to IT, which I could have done. I still get headhunters sending me emails and stuff like that. Um, but it's it's important for me to do this as long as I can. I don't know how long I'll be able to do this because um, there are challenges to doing this as well. But it just felt like something that I really needed to to lead the way in terms of giving people a target where they could throw their shame at um, and be able to speak on behalf and advocate for folks that either aren't being listened to or don't even have a seat at the table where the conversation is happening. Yeah. And one of the things um, that you do with nothing but kindness uh, when you're working with people in these um, stigmatized groups is focus on harm reduction. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what harm reduction is and, and as a strategy for, for assisting people? Absolutely. Absolutely. So harm reduction is something that we've all been doing. And I realized later on, as I was being taught the, the concepts that we've, we, we use harm reduction every day. Your seatbelt is harm reduction. So if you get in a car crash, hopefully there's less damage. Sunscreen is harm reduction. Um, there are things that we utilize on a daily basis that is harm reduction that most people don't even think of that way. And in terms of harm reduction versus the old model, the old model was complete abstinence. It was a pass or fail test. You're either quote unquote clean or dirty, which those are both stigmatizing terms in their older language anyways. Um, That implies, I mean, obviously the word dirty implies all the things that you would think that go along with it. 
So with harm reduction, if someone is, let's say, drinking 10 beers a day, and that's a problem. If you can get to a point where you're drinking nine beers a day, that's 10% better in the direction that you're hoping to get, if that's your goal. Right. Um, and now in the old, the old thinking, uh, in some of the ways that uh, is still viewed around the world, the country, different programs, it's either pass or fail. And it's punitive. If you returned to use and went and had a drink on the way home, but you didn't get shit tanked like you used to, but you had a drink, you're a failure. You failed. Um, it wasn't seen as a success that you only had one drink instead of 10. Um, it was seen as you failed and you must not either have the willpower or the want or the drive to not have that drink. Yeah, it's so in a lot of time. Oh yeah, please oh, sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, and a lot of times where one of the first things I'll, I'll ask folks when we start talking, if it's about substance use is, well, what are the good things? Like, why, why do you like doing this drug? Like, cause there's generally a, a positive or at least started out as a positive, either someone's experience was so traumatic that they just can't even process it. And being regular in your own skin, in your own thought process is too much to handle. Mm -hmm. um, and they have access to talk therapy and things like that. There's just so many different reasons that people use. If you slept under the bridge and it's freezing out, you might want instead of, you know, an egg McMuffin, a pint of whiskey because you just froze your ass off and you were sleeping with one eye open all night. So you didn't get robbed or assaulted. So um, there are reasons why people are using these substances to begin with. So I would usually ask people like, what are the good things that come from this? Like what, what are the pleasures or what, why do you do it? And then help me understand some of the things that you find challenging or that are problematic for you. And, you know, when people get to chaotic use, uh, and chaotic use is a more extreme version or uh, in the, the paradigm of harm reduction, where it's just that where you're using so chaotically that um, you're either, you know, depleting your financial resources, causing problems in your relationships or your profession or um, medical problems are arising from it. You know, so chaotic use um, is usually the worst place where you're either going to end up in jail or in the hospital or dead or something like that. Not all the time, but chaotic use is very out of control for the most part. And everyone's a little different. Everyone has a little bit of a different um, support system. Um, but for folks that are in chaotic use and don't necessarily have the resources, harm reduction is a way to eke out that small, tangible form of success. Like, I, instead of having a pack of cigarettes today, I had almost a whole pack, but there were two left the next morning. Mm -hmm. um, and I, for the most part of my life, was a black or white person. I was all or nothing. And that's kind of, I guess, the culture I was raised in. You either win or you lose. You know, uh, it was all or nothing for me. So I felt like even if I got out of detox and went and had like two Percocets instead of 20 that day um, that I was so shameful and like, why can't I fucking do this? Like everyone else in the world seems to be able to get around and do their things. And I can't even make it 24 hours without putting this stupid chemical in my body. I didn't want it. Yeah. Um, I wasn't getting high at the end. It was to not feel sick. 
Uh, and that's the irony at the end, um, probably for the last year to year and a half, it was only the function it was no longer pleasurable. It was the opposite. It was horrible. Um, if I didn't have it, it was hard to even go to work, yeah. but if I had it, I could act like I always felt like, Oh, this is what a normal person feels like, you know? And that's, I guess a whole nother thing, but, um, yeah, I, uh, do you, do you, do you find most people that you work with are coming um, into harm reduction thinking that that it was all or nothing before, like that that was the expectation, uh, e- either their own expectations or the expectations they're feeling from society? Is that still a barrier that you have to you grapple with with folks that you're helping? Is is get get them to see that harm harm reduction might be a good place to start. So, do you mean folks that I'm supporting, or like colleagues and peers that I'm working with? It could be both, but I, I think mostly I'm interested in the people you're supporting. Do, do, when okay. you're when you're in, when you're engaging with them, like at the outset, do you often find that they thought it was all or nothing? Um, almost all the time, yes. And so I, I used to work as a recovery coach at a, a larger organization in the area. And as a recovery coach, um, I was also a certified peer specialist, which meant I could not ethically talk about medication with folks. And that medication included Suboxone, Methadone, and Narcan. Now, someone working with folks that are using substances, I would say at the time at that organization, at least 80 to 90% of the folks were consistently returning to use each week. They were struggling, trying to get to a place where they could uh, avoid the substance. But in a lot of situations, like I told you, if you're living in the same building as your dealer or everyone around you, your entire friends group, your family, they all use. Well, now you have to either choose between your social supports, which you're already probably pretty low if you're just coming out of detox and you're trying to quit your one coping um, external coping skill mechanism and everyone else around you is using it's it's difficult so at that organization they got real upset when I started giving out Narcan to the folks I was supporting because fentanyl was being found in not only opiates but also meth coke crack uh, it was just, if it was illicit pills, I mean, if it was illicit, you had to assume that it could have been caught with fentanyl. And I wasn't supposed to be discussing medication as a peer specialist, but I was primarily working as a recovery coach. And it became a philosophical thing where they were saying, I can't give this stuff out to folks. And I continued to do it because there was no way that I was going to let someone that didn't understand the difference between harm reduction and abstinence and people's luxury of being able to get to abstinence, um, I was going to keep giving out Narcan. So with that particular organization, it was better for us to uh, part ways because philosophically, I no longer believed in their their vision and I couldn't like, I'm not going to do this work. If I'm going to sell my soul uh, to a job, I'm going to make five or six times the amount of money than I am right now. Mm-hmm. I am clearly doing this for philosophical reasons and wanting to manifest change uh, rather than personal financial fulfillment. So 
um, I feel like I'm in a great situation in terms of I have a very clear understanding of what I want to try to accomplish. And I feel that sometimes I get to walk along the path of certain organizations and benefit from them mutually. Um, we both get something out of it. I learn what I can or what I need to until I get to the next level or barrier. And then I either um, try to bring up another approach or methodology at the place I'm at or go find a place that is doing that so I can continue um, my own personal education in trying to increase the amount of people that I have access to and that I can reach and support. Do you, um, under the guise of what you're doing with um, Nothing But Kindness, do you work with um, municipalities like um, and other types of organizations that support people? Absolutely. Actually, I've been calling uh, 2021 my strength in numbers year. Hmm. Um, so for some reason, um, on September 1st, Nothing But Kindness turned three. And I had like 400 Facebook likes and I was just like, all right, one dude doing this for three years on his own with an acoustic guitar, 400 likes. All right, cool. That's 400 more than I had when I started. Uh, and then something happened in September. Um, and in like a four day period, right on the, the, the anniversary, the numbers doubled and went mm. to 800, like in three days instead of three years. And then, it's been continuing to grow. And what I've been trying to do is leverage um, collaborations with a lot of the organizations that because of COVID have had to limit their outreach, um, maybe because they have um, funding or, you know, uh, insurance guidelines or, or liabilities that they can't ask folks to go out for. And to me, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I worked at the needle exchange in Holyoke and we held it down the entire time. We didn't close. We transitioned to um, an RV and we maintained service for our folks because a lot of folks that are unsheltered don't have the luxury of hygiene and washing your hands as many times as, you know, people were recommending in the CDC. Right. And they absolutely, with the lockdown, we're going to have disrupted access to their normal drug supply. So they were going to be forced into maybe using different vendors who they don't know if there's cut in it or not. So they are exposing themselves to an additional risk. If they can't get down to uh, the needle exchange or somewhere to get Narcan, maybe they don't have Narcan um, and maybe they're reusing needles and, you know, increasing the, their potential for contracting bloodborne pathogens like hep C HIV with the sharing of needles or snorting kits or smoking kits. So it was really important to maintain that presence. And I started seeing more organizations like I now partner with Hampshire Hope. Uh, and I'm working on a few different um, community advisory boards and with their DART team. Um, I have partnered with Mana Community Kitchen and we opened a warming center. Um, because we were waiting for the city to come up with their resiliency hub. And uh, there were a few really vocal folks on this one particular. Um, I'm on the Next Step Collaborative at Town Hall in Northampton. And that has all of the service providers like 
Cooley Dick, ServiceNet, Tapestry Health, Safe Passage, Nothing But Kindness, MANA, Friends of the Homeless. Everyone comes together once a month. And in January, we were talking about when the resiliency you know, hub was going to be opened, which would be a place where eventually people can go and community linkages, like to whatever organization they might need or getting connected with Mass Health or the Obama phone or housing applications or best case scenario, being able to take care of some of your, your needs. Like we decided to open the warming center immediately. Um, Lee Anderson and Kate Cordosa uh, are people that I've been working with through St. John's Church, the Mana Community Kitchen. And in the middle of that meeting, I was texting over and said, let's just open this shit. And Lee and Kate were like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. They're like, all right, let's have a meeting next week. And then we also were joined by Ahalia and Nora, two other folks. Um, and the five of us opened a warming center where five days a week, people can go and get a shower, a hot shower if they want, do their laundry, get a meal. We've got clothes that were donated, um, which we're even starting to build out on some nice racks and have them sized. We have hygiene supplies. Um, I also partner with another harm reduction organization called the Harm Reduction Hedgehogs, or HRH413. And a lot of my outreach uh, in terms of getting clean syringes, clean smoking kits, clean snorting kits, safer sex resources, PPE stuff, um, the Harm Reduction Hedgehogs and Jess Tilly and LB Park often help me with those resources. Hampshire Hope contributes the Narcan for me to get out there to folks. Um, Mana Community Kitchen in St. John's um, help out with, I've got a wagon that I bring down with me to do outreach and I'll come down with anywhere from 20 to 40 hot meals uh, and sleeping bags and tents and um, menstrual supplies and, you know, hand warmers and socks and just like anything like TP, you know, anything that seems like it's just a small thing, but literally can make all the difference in the world when it shows up at your, your feet when you probably needed it the most. Yeah. And so there's a lot of partnerships. Um, the Northampton Recovery Center, they've been a strong partner with me for a long time. And they're also, I went there. Um, yeah, I haven't yeah. been doing as much with Tapestry Health as much recently, but it's mostly like uh, Hampshire Hope, the Harm Reduction Hedgehogs, um, Mana Community Kitchen, Friends of the Homeless. And I'm, I'm grateful to have these um, relationships that have been building over the years. And it seems like they're all coming to fruition right now, even like with the locker project that we just opened this past week. Yeah. Can um, you tell us about that? You know, I'm really interested absolutely. in that. Yeah. So apparently the lore goes that this has been a discussion for probably a good six or seven years where it became something in my reality was when I was homeless, um, I had two backpacks and I would have to carry everything I owned with me everywhere. And it's often cold in the morning, but screaming hot by lunch. So you had to wear all of your layers, you know, in the morning, and then you're sweating, carrying your backpacks. Uh, I was always concerned that I might have an odor because I didn't have be able to do laundry as much as I wanted. So I was, you know, my anxiety was kicking. Um, and I, would try to stash my stuff sometimes. Like I'd try to go find a place to stash it. 50% of the time it would be stolen by the time you come back. Um, and I was 
remember thinking at the time, I wish there was just like a locker or a room that we could put our stuff during the day. Yeah. So that way you could kind of try to blend in and be, you know, less of a neon sign walking down main street, you know, with all of your bags. So, um, I had started talking about it back then. And apparently this conversation had been going on before me. And then it had been supported by other folks in the last three years. So it's, there are 24 lockers. They're about three by three. Uh, they, I really appreciate the fact that they're letting me manage the project because I feel very passionate about it. Um, and it was kind of, uh, pushed through by the city of Northampton, Mayor Narkowitz and um, Keith Benoit and Allen. Um, and it was handed off after they were purchased and placed. Um, it was handed off to Mana Community Kitchen so I could manage it through there. Uh, and the rest of the team will be also helping to manage it. But it, it, the, the model we're trying to use is that you don't have to be homeless to need one of these lockers. You could be someone that is coming down to shop and you have to carry all these different things, or maybe you have children with you and you just, it's impossible for you to maybe on public transportation with all these things to navigate a store. So anywhere from a 72 hour reservation to a 30 day reservation, you can get the locker for it. And that to me is representative of someone's house. Like it's the only place that they might have that they can lock something up. There are a lot of benefits to that. One, you can, leave with your coat on in the morning. And when it gets hot, toss your coat in there or your backpack. Um, Things that you don't want to bring to the shelter at night. Like let's say you have a pocket knife. Most people that are living, I have a pocket knife for a sense of security as well as a utility. But when you go into the shelter, you have to get it and submit it. So if someone has a locker where they could put their pocket knife before they go into the shelter, it makes the shelter safer. It gives that opportunity. People often are carrying substances um, if they are substance, uh, if they're using substances. So they either have to lie and try to sneak it into the shelter or it gets confiscated. Uh, So this is giving a place where people can put some of the things that they maybe don't want everyone to be in their business about, even their regular prescriptions could be anything, could be Um, I used to have my insulin stolen all the time when I was there, uh, because people thought they could get money for it. Mm -hmm. Um, so even things like food, I had to eat diabetic food and people would just barge through my shit and eat my stuff, you know? And so having a place to have like a three by three place where I could maybe put the very few pictures of my daughter that I was able to keep through the eviction process or, um, Maybe private information, like if I was journaling that I didn't want people to have access to or anything that was valuable or precious to me to be able to lock up, as well as the utilitarian aspect of I could put my backpack in there and use that as a home base or leave food in there or store my, you know, uh, things that I need throughout the day that I can come back to. Yeah, it's such an... So that project... Yeah, I was just going to say, it's such an insightful... Um, thing to put in place that you know it will have such a big impact, I think, for people for all the reasons you just described. Huge, yeah. Um, you know, and we 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 narrowed it down. Um, we looked at other 
um, organizations throughout the United States and actually in Europe that did these type of locker programs. And we kind of tried to see what the common denominators were. And we ended up chopping out basically all of the, the recommendations except three. And the reason why we're doing that is also harm reduction. And that's why I love that Johns is really invested in following through with the harm reduction philosophy. A lot of lockers will say you can't store weapons or legal things in there. Mm-hmm. Well, no shit, but that's what we want them to do to like, we don't want them going, we don't want anyone to have illegal stuff or weapons or anything like that. But the reality is it's there. Right. So we can either just like sharps containers, sharps containers don't make it. So people do drugs. It makes it so that it's disposed of safely. Condoms don't make teens have sex. They're already having sex. It just hopefully reduces the number of unwanted pregnancies. And it's the same with these lockers. They're very much um, a stopgap to allow people like a lot of the locker programs say no perishable items. Well, people are going to put their food in there. You know, we need to expect that we're going to need to clean these things out like in a sanitary manner and just make that part of the process. So that way people can use these in ways that are meaningful to them. And, And much the same way that I approach that locker as someone's house. I'm not going to go in there. I will never search it. The only I have a master code to reset it for you if you forget your code. Um, but there's a logging process that I put in place to make sure that there's accountability and that we can see, you know, if anyone needs to assist someone with a locker that it's, you know, documented. Um, because I really want people to feel safe and secure and like that this is their spot. Um, so out of the 24. Um, we only have three left open right now. Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't know if we're going to have a waiting list or if there's a potential need for more of these lockers, we will see. But some of the things that we had to, we basically chopped it down to don't hang anything on the outside because I don't want to see anybody getting upset, whether it's a proud boy sticker or, you know, someone pulling some shady shit that's going to marginalize or make someone else feel, you know, yeah. bad. Um, uh, so you can't do that. Nothing flammable. And, um, you can't basically, you can't be outside the lockers for more than a 15 minute period. Cause they would consider that loitering. Originally the conversation was around five minutes. And I said, can we agree that you walking up to a locker, pulling your stuff out of your backpack, figuring out what you need, swapping it out with stuff in your locker, filling your backpack up putting it on and catching your breath, like a 15 minute time seemed like a fair, a fair amount of time uh, for, for that to happen respectfully. And absolutely the town agreed with it. So we're super grateful about that. We hope that there's not going to be loitering out there or people trying to sleep in front of it um, because that will bring less than favorable attention to this. And we want this to be a really successful program to see if we can continue to grow things like this. Yeah, and it might take some, so, it might take some trial and error and, 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 and enculturation mm-hmm. around how the lockers are used before, before you get there. And like you said, it doesn't have to be, you know, we don't have to approach this with an all or nothing mentality. It doesn't have to work perfectly from the outset. You know, it's going to take some time. Very much so. And I'm hoping to continue to solicit feedback from our community. You know, if people mm-hmm. have ideas, you know, they can either contact me through, you know, nothing but kindness social media pages or, you know, the Mana Community Kitchen. And we're always looking for 
um, people with ideas because a thousand brains are, you know, probably going to have more ideas than one, one brain and one worldview. And uh, we often are working with the folks that we're supporting and saying, well, what, just like, what do you need? Like what's helpful? What's realistic? What do you think are mutually held expectations in this community and around this project that we want? And we involved them in coming up with what we didn't even want to call them rules or have any of the word like prohibited or anything like that. Cause these are adults. Um, we just wanted to say like, these are what we all hope we mutually can, you know, agree to. And these are the things that we feel like we've spoken to as many people as possible. And this might, this might give us a good shot at being respectful to each other and coexisting and even a, a difficult situation such as this. Yeah. You talked um, a little bit earlier about some of the, the harm reduction supplies that you provide to people. I'm just curious, like how does how does nothing but kindness get funding for that stuff? Is that, I'm assuming, you know, I'm assuming you can't bankroll it all personally. There must be some, some support for being able to provide the outreach that you're doing. So some of it is personally supplied. Um, I would say the majority of it is um, contributed by community members. Um, when there was the fire underneath the bridge a couple weeks ago, um, nothing but kindness and harm reduction hedgehogs and Mana Community Kitchen all went online and put out that we had this need for sleeping bags and tents and you know things like that. Within 24 hours, the community had come together in a point where we were able to at least replace most of the things that were lost in that fire. Um, where my funding comes out of it is mostly like logistics stuff. Um, I don't have my 501c3 yet. I'm in the process of that, but that also costs a fair mm -hmm. amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm considered not for profit, not nonprofit, mm -hmm. um, but like things to run the organization like my cell phone or transportation, or uh, a lot of times I'll buy, you know, some protein bars or hand warmers, like when we're low on resources, but a lot of it comes from uh, community members or our organizations. Like, like I had mentioned earlier, uh, harm reduction, hedgehogs, Mana community kitchen, uh, Hampshire hope, the, the organizations that I'm working with, I love the fact that no one, and this equation cares about who gets credit for getting these resources to people mm -hmm. that need it. Everyone just wants it there. So like people can, at, you know, at my wagon is at um, the warming center when I'm not doing outreach and people can, you know, that I'm working with can go up there. If someone needs a pair of shoes and the shoes are on there, they can grab it. You know, like we don't really don't care. We just want stuff out there. So um, some people have the time I've got the time and, uh, I'm full of the, the piss and vinegar to keep me out there and doing this stuff. Some people don't have the time, but have maybe money that they can buy hand warmers and donate them. Mm -hmm. Or some people are good with logistics and might be able to help me either get to an outreach point or get resources to an outreach point or get someone a ride to detox or pay for an Uber to get someone to detox. Or so the, the community is really, I just look at myself as kind of like air traffic control for resources I don't like to take financial donations until I get my 501c3. Yeah. If people, if that's the way that they 
are able to contribute, then I offer them, I can give you a receipt for what, you know, I'm going to, you know, what this is intended for, or what it's ended up used for. Um, so far, no one's asked for that, but I always try to make sure that that is there because I don't want someone to be like, Hey, KB's got some really nice new shoes on and I just donated this money last right. week, you know? And so the accountability piece to me is super huge. Um, and a lot of like a lot of my personal money goes into it in terms of building out the infrastructure and the, the organization itself. And a lot of the resources that I'm able to move to folks comes from either our other organizations or community members that some people, I've got someone in East Hampton that makes me, she knits these hats. I've got another artist who couldn't do portraits uh, during the pandemic. So she started making um, cloth masks and she probably moved two or 300 through me, you know? And so people have really tried to figure out how they can help. And even if they don't have the money, you know, even showing up, you know, and uh, bringing, you know, a case of water or, you know, anything at all, just showing up and being someone that someone can talk to, you know, I'm a very small demographic. I'm a cis hetero white dude. Someone might come up and connect better with, uh, someone that meets their, their features, you know, someone might've had an experience with domestic violence and might feel, um, uncomfortable speaking with a man, or, uh, I don't speak other languages. So when I have more diversity and more, uh, people represented and like, um, I've got some folks that go out with me that identify as LGBTQ. So they would be able to speak more with lived experience to things that that person might speak about in relation to that than I would be able to. So sometimes just being a, an ear or a different perspective is so impactful to helping the cause. Yeah, and I noticed on um, the Nothing But Kindness Facebook page, there looked like a group of people who were um, volunteers working with you. Are there opportunities um, for for people who might have the time to connect with you and, and help out in some way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a couple different initiatives depending on how our lockdown goes for the rest of this year. Um, there's a couple different projects that are going on um, and a couple different initiatives, but some of the projects that we're trying to do right now is um, record, giving people an opportunity to record their story. So I might meet someone on the street and they can either say what their name is or not. They can say whatever they want about their story. They can give how they got there or where they want to go or what it's like right now. And they might be able to say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find like housing in Amherst or I'm trying to get a job in this. And eventually I would like to put this. I had originally uh, planned on starting my podcast, uh, Recover, Rinse, Repeat in January. But the warming center became a higher priority and uh, a much quicker impact to folks mm-hmm. immediately. But I'd like to be able to put those stories up on the podcast and say like, hey, um, anonymous person seven, if you know anybody that's uh, renting an apartment for this in Amherst in this price range, contact, you know, nothing but kindness or um, this person is looking for a job. So if you know anything, you know, and trying to connect again, people with resources, but allowing them to tell their story. Um, and also I'm working on a, uh, a project where taking shadows 
pictures of shadows of people on outreach. So whereas I won't take someone's picture and out them, I ask them if I can take a picture of their shadow. So like if we're standing and I'm giving them harm reduction resources and I happen to notice their shadow is across this dumpster and it looks really cool. I'll ask if I can take that picture and I'm trying to collect um, the something along the lines of like the shadows of the struggle. Um, So those are things that I've just started working on because some of the bigger things that would involve people not being socially distanced, I, I just can't count on for this year, but I'm always looking for folks that either want to help um, with logistics, um, you know, because sometimes we'll be moving a lot of resources and I can only fit so much on my cart. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will, you know, kind of drop ship stuff for me. They'll bring down the 20 meals, you know, and drop them off for me at Pulaski Park or whatever, you know, logistics or um, sometimes there's a great organization that um, I just started uh, or I just applied to start volunteering with. It's called Never Use Alone. This is an amazing program where let's say I'm using heroin and one of the biggest ways that I put myself at risk for a fatal overdose is if I use alone, because if there's fentanyl in it, I obviously can't Narcan myself. Right. So with never use alone, you call this number and it goes to any one of these people on this team and they basically sit with you on the phone uh, while you use. And either they can break the call and call back in a few minutes. If you don't answer, they would send emergency responders to your location. Uh, Or if you're on the phone with them the whole time and they just get you to a point where you made it through like that initial window where you might overdose. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a volunteer job. And that has been growing quickly throughout the United States. I think um, it's I think it's in like 12 12 or 13 states right now, and it's sweeping across the country. But we have a chapter in Massachusetts. Uh, Stephen Murray uh, of Northern Berkshire County uh, has been, um, I think he is like the top dog in Mass, possibly. Um, But Mike Brown, who started this, uh, is in Michigan right now. And that's one of the benefits of one of the silver linings, I'll say, of the, the pandemic is that I am now plugged into more global harm reduction resources than I ever even thought about or even knew about before. Um, and having access to things like this, people can sign up for Never Use Alone and volunteer there, or they can help with you know, logistics with nothing but kindness. Or uh, the warming center is looking for some volunteers right now where they have two shifts. There's like a nine to 11:30, and then like a 12 to three. And we have myself and Ahalia that are staffing it, but we try to have two other volunteers there so that we can give very person specific um, interactions and attention without uh, making it. So other people are not having the opportunity to get what they need while they're there. This may be the dumbest question I asked tonight. Um, will the warming center transition to like a cooling center come the summer? Like, are you going to be able to maintain that, that space as the, the seasons change? So that's not a dumb question. Um, <laughs> so it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going ahead with the, uh, the assumption that I'm pulling some kind of the secret bullshit, uh, like, uh, attracting my, uh, my reality here. 
I want this to be a 12 month program, whether it's at St. John's mm-hmm. or a different, different building or different organization, there needs to be a cooling center. There needs to be a warming center. There needs to be a 12 month program where there's consistently access to resources. So it's not us waiting till the whole building's on fire and shit's going crazy. We should be trying to serve these folks that are our community neighbors uh, and someone's child or mother or sister or brother. Like these are folks that if it was your family member, you would be horrified that this is going on. And Again, I think part of it is people are terrified to actually engage with someone that's struggling so hard because it makes it real. Yeah. Um, but we need, we've needed a 12 month program forever. Um, I know that in the summers I switch from doing hand warmers and, you know, stuff like that and gloves to stuff like water, sunscreen, bug spray, you know, it's kind of seasonal. And I can remember so many different times this past summer and the one before that, where I would just go out and buy like freeze pops and just try to get frozen popsicles to people to try to cool them down mm-hmm. because it's ridiculous. Um, Cause at least before the COVID uh, pandemic, like if you were super hot during the summer, you could go to Forbes library and cool down and the same during the winter, you could warm up there. Well, Forbes is not a resource for folks anymore. So like when you're cold or hot, you're outside. Um, you can't even kind of go into thorns and hang out. You know, it's very much task-based um, privilege for where you're going in places. I Tonight at the mall, I walked into Best Buy and they're like, what are you here for? First of all, again, there's that someone like telling me I have to do some shit. I felt like I had to answer them. So right. I refused to take my headphones off and I just stared at them. Like, I'm here to spend money. I'm here at a store. Like, mm-hmm. like I don't want to have to like justify why I'm here. Now, if I had two backpacks on and maybe looked like I hadn't taken a shower in a day, I probably wouldn't have even attempted that because I would have felt that shame we were talking about before, which is not even necessary, but it's self-imposed in a lot of cases when you talk to folks. Um, So I I, long, long answer to that is this absolutely should be a 12 month program. I don't know that it will go to a 12 month program in this particular form that it's in right now. But I know that the we just had the next step collaborative meeting today and they're talking about a resiliency hub. Um, you know, they're talking about the planning of it right now, which is kind of what we're doing now, but with legitimate funding and having representation by different organizations at the same place. Um, and not just kind of squatting in somebody's church. You know, we're using, we're lucky yeah. to be able to use their space because they're not able to use that space right now. Yeah. But when this opens back up, yeah. they'll want their space back. So we're hoping to find a new home for this. Yeah. And I didn't realize that St. John's, so that's where the Northampton Survival Center started a number of years back. That's also where the interfaith drop-in shelter started and the Manda Community Meals. So like, St. John's has been like a badass and showing up and representing for people for decades. And I'm like that much more proud to be affiliated with them because I'm hoping some of that magic will rub off on nothing but kindness. And in 20 years, we can be doing like the 25th anniversary show on soft serve podcast. God, I, ho- <laughs> I, I hope so for, for both of our sakes. Um, KB, I'm, I'm listening to you talk and I, I heard you talk about, 
how this, you know, this is, this is important and good, but it's challenging work too. Right. And how, how are you taking care of yourself during all of this? I mean, you, you can't burn out, right. You're doing all of this good work. So what do you, what are you doing to make sure you're, you're taking care of yourself? Well, <laughs> um, so secondary trauma is a very real thing mm -hmm. in, in this, in this field. So the amount of fatal overdoses you're exposed to as part of your job or very often intersecting with someone at their very worst day of their life is a lot to witness and hold. Um, I've started to try to be more mindful of healthy ways to cope. Like I smoke my cigarettes and drink my caffeine, um, but I'm trying not to just keep, you know, stoking that fire. Um, there's a couple meetings that I attend myself, Zoom meetings for harm reduction, and it's a lot of folks that are doing the same work. And we try to let each other vent and just say whatever hard shit they had to witness that week. Yeah. You know, um, um, I, I've been trying to do more uh, like a meditation, like a 15 minute uh, intent meditation in the beginning of the day, and then a mindful gratitude at the end of the day. I normally used to be like, oh, I did these 10 things wrong as I'm laying in bed, you know, and go through all my shitty inventory. Mm -hmm. And I've been intentionally trying to think about, okay, maybe I don't have 10 things that I did well, but let's think of three things I didn't do as bad as I could have, you know, and I've been trying to change some of my own um, perspective on that stuff and podcasts. I've been going out and walking anywhere from an hour or two a day um, outside of outreach and work and everything and just listening to podcasts. My brain is like overflowing with so many topics right now. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the great things about podcasts is you can like, you know, if you're in the mood for it, for aliens, I yeah. dial up one yeah. of those, <laughs> you know, if I'm in, in the mood for something else, I can pull that up. Um, and I just, um, I just, I want to remind people too, we've talked a lot about um, unsheltered um, individuals, people struggling with um, um, substance use at different levels, but I want to remind people that the different, I mean, nothing but kindness does outreach across the spectrum of these stigmatized um, conditions that we all find ourselves in at one point or another in our lives, um, you know, um, different forms of of of, of abuse, um, mental health issues, um, self-injurious behaviors, people may be struggling with, with employment issues, food insecurity, um, LGBTQ plus people and people dealing with, um, maybe struggling with issues around that gender identity, uh, sex workers. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, the, the breadth of what, um, nothing but kindness is, is doing in terms of harm reduction is, is impressive. And I just wanted to remind people it, it, you're doing more than um, just focusing on um, people who are uh, maybe um, unsheltered or struggling with substance abuse. So I just wanted to, to, to let people know um, who, who might be listening to this and considering outreach, yep. you know, so yeah. um, definitely. Um, might I add that yeah. almost everything that you just said mm -hmm. is often paired with either unsheltered or substance use as an issue. You know, a lot of the times that those things are either symptomatic in terms of like transactional sex work, like where am I staying tonight or how do I get mm -hmm. to eat or um, 
uh, someone maybe that is transitioning um, from uh, male to female, you know, in their process and maybe doesn't have the emotional support from the family or whatever things that might come up in that process. Uh, I don't know how the hormones must affect people or just the the processing of that transition yourself has got to be pretty impactful. So a lot of things can either lead up to the substance use or homelessness or be part of the response to the homelessness and substance use as well. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, so um, we always ask this question and this is kind of a fun question of our guests um, kind of as we're, as we're beginning our wrap up here. Um, and you can take this question literally any way you want to. This is, this is okay. one of those eye of the beholder Rorschach <laughs> type of questions. So um, nice. what, what have you experienced that you cannot explain? And I'm going to play some um, prompting spooky music under you as you contemplate um, what you might've experienced that you cannot explain. Can I tell you the incident, but not the whole story? With Absolutely, it? you can. This, this the floor is All yours. Right. All right. So I was on tour as a drummer with Arlo Guthrie when I was a, a wee lad, and we ended up at an ashram in front of a Hindu guru, who showed me for the first time in my life that I can't explain everything, uh, and I was like pretty arrogant young like person, like ah, I know everything. I've got all this locked down. And um, all I will say is that is how I ended up with the first name Kali Baba. It was so unexplainable and so impactful that I that shit changed my name for like 25 years ago. I love it. Thank you. That was great. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Bhagavati, yeah. All right, KB, um, last question, I promise. Is there anything else that you want to tell us um, before um, before we wrap up for, for real here? Um, I just hope that anyone out there that is struggling, um, I hope that they can find someone that they can connect with, uh, that they feel able to speak with uh, without judgment. I hope that they... Uh, are able to be a little bit kinder to themselves because I know how hard it can be to forgive myself for certain things. Um, so I hope that if anyone's struggling and they hear this, that uh, there is, there's hope and there are people out there that want to help you and that love you, even though they don't know you. Uh, and for folks that maybe are in the orbit of someone struggling, um, if you can do your best to understand that this isn't a personal thing, like they're not showing up at your house after you told them not to under the influence, um, they're not showing up to piss you off. They're doing it because they have no choice at that moment. And that if we can love someone, even when they're struggling and doing things that we don't think they should be doing, and that's our own personal thoughts, not that person's thoughts, um, if we can still show up and, and create space for them and love them and at least do no harm, at least the Hippocratic Oath, and just give them respect and autonomy, um, they're going to want to stay engaged with you as a person. And you're going to be able to maintain 
a supportive relationship with them a lot easier than if you're saying, well, you relapsed last night. So that's a failure. Must be disappointed in yourself, huh? Or you can't come around me because of X, Y, Z. I don't think I've ever heard someone say, well, you've got diabetes. If you ate a muffin today or a donut, don't bother coming home. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so if we can just try to understand that, we don't understand all of the things that are motivating someone to do something. Um, and if we can just try to be aware of our own biases, you know, I call myself out all the time and I'm like, why am I feeling that way? This is bullshit. Like what that I'm thinking this sometimes I get to it and I'm able to like practice it and fix it. Other times I'm still searching to keep myself accountable, but if we can just create space for everybody um, and think about it as you might be interacting with someone on their very worst day. Did they lose someone to COVID today? Yeah. Did they have to put their dog down? Did they lose their job? Are they terrified that they're going to be homeless? Were they just diagnosed with any number of things? And if we can take the personalizing out of it um, and just show up for each other, I, I, I would be super psyched. Like that would be a great 2021 is if people can try to find one person to pay it forward with one idea of happiness in one direction and expect nothing in return. God damn it. My skin is tingling. (laughs) Stomping Jen. Um, KB McConnell beautifully said, I want to, I want to thank you for the work you're doing um, in our, in our communities. I, I think it's important work. I think you are, setting an example for people to aspire to. So um, if you've been inspired and you feel like you can help in some way, um, I will be posting the link to um, Nothing But Kindness in the show notes. You can Google that on Facebook. It'll come right up and um, go do that and yep. and and help out with this work. Um, to our listeners, um, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Um, we love you. Um, thank you for continuing to be along on the ride with us. Um, we've been promising great conversations and we're delivering, <laughs> right? As you've just heard. So all we ask is you subscribe and just tell a friend about the podcast. That's it. And right? download. And download episodes too. Sure. Yeah. Yep. But, Share with a friend. Yep. Um, so... Yeah. We were just going to say goodbye, right, Stomping Jack? Yep, be safe out there. All right, be safe out there. Uh, we love you. Um, KB, you want to give us a bye now? <laughs> I would love to say uh, a great round of uh, happiness to Sawtooth and Stomping Jen for tolerating me. And uh, good luck on the editing process. And uh, it, it was, I look forward to round two someday. It was a pleasure. Yes, and we we you. And we will have a round two. Yeah. Um, with that, we're awesome. going to... With that, we're going to say to everyone, bye now. This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity. And that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, 
all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road.